Welcome to the first ever episode of Broken Oars, the podcast by rowers and for rowers who consider rowing to always be better 12 years ago. Because it doesn't really matter what the date is, rowing was better 12 years ago. I am joined in this endeavour by Mr. Aaron Isaac Jackson, the fastest man to ever hold an oar with stage three kidney disease. As you'll find out, Aaron, how are you? I'm fine, Lewin. Thank you for inviting me to be on Broken Oars, which I believe is the world's um, first and best rowing podcast. I believe there are others, but let's just claim that title right from the off. I uh, think we should. It's a delight to be here. Um, yes. I like the introduction. I like the fact to point out that I, I set all of my oak scores and all of all of um, everything I did with rowing, I did with only half a kidney. Um, but I'd like to be very clear that it wasn't my half a kidney. It was one that I borrowed. Um, and I only wish that I borrowed it from a very fit person instead of a very unfit person because then my oaks would have been a lot better. Yeah, uh, I, I, I seem to have some memories of sort of like being a... The, the definition of unfit being like slower than 6.30, which is like a, a fairly broad definition of unfit, but never mind. Um, yes, I was thinking today. I, I, got to, I got 6.30. I got to 6.30 for my 2K. I just couldn't go any faster because I had a, I borrowed a bad kidney. That's all I'm saying. You know, I was, I was unfit in the broader sense of the word yes that's true. i mean but, but literally do you actually know anyone else any other human being out there who had stage three kidney disease who made it to henley who beat 631 i mean it, it's not it's not a bad achievement just to be able to say oh you know what i was immensely sick and i still rode faster than any 10 men uh, yeah, I guess I could. I could say that I don't know anyone off the top of my head who um, who pulled that score with stage three kidney disease with you know thirty one percent kidney function. But then again, um, it's not like I went around asking. Uh, and our coach Dennis O'Neill always pointed out that regardless of the fact that I only had half a kidney, I should have been at least ten seconds faster for a man of my height and weight. So I, I'm not, you know, um, I'm not sure whether the kidney thing was a viable reason for him for the fact that i was basically um slow yeah yeah but again it's 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 much in the same way that i believe that you know regardless of the current date rowing was better 12 years ago um oh no i I, I think basically dennis looks at anybody's height and weight and then looks at their oak store and say you should be 10 seconds faster i mean i mean he he is essentially a rowing coach well yeah so it's his default mode of expression but I, I, I think it should also be pointed out, you know, and again, I realize that I've already played the kidney card very early in the, in the life of this podcast. And I'm about to play the height and weight card, which was I weighed 13 stone, 10 pounds and I was six foot one and a half, which in the land of age craft and rowing makes me a midget. You know, I was surrounded by behemoths, by leviathans, by men of 15 and 16 stone who were six foot five, who had the wingspan of vast orangutans. Now, I'm not looking at anybody in particular as I say this, you know, but there is a man that I'm talking to who, who does have an oak score of six minutes and nine seconds. Is, is that correct? Which is pretty uh, there, 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 there was a time. Um, yes. 
And you did it with it, a call. It wasn't even 12 years ago. It was like eight years ago. But, you know, it's... Um... And you did it with a cold, I believe. You were, you were under the weather on that day. Is that is that correct? No, no. The the infamous I did it under the weather with a bad back was 6.13 at the, uh, at the British rowing... No, the English Indoor Championships in Manchester. Um... And, and and I and I was copiously sick in a bin afterwards. Um, yeah, so you know, I mean, my sickness pales into insignificance at, at that point. It, it, it really does. I'm ta- I'm literally talking to a god. I'm talking to a, a god amongst men. So, would, 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 would you um, would you like extend that compliment to my performance? In the boat with an actual oar in my hand. Oh, come on. Come <laughs> on. You can't ask me that. Our friendship is at stake. Um, yes, I can. Of course I can. You are a superb oarsman. Superb oarsman. Um, right, that's it. Podcast over. <laughs> I've got everything I need. Where's the record button? Your finish was a thing of beauty. Your catch was reminiscent of a Viking berserker after a long, hard day at berserking realizing he still had more people to decapitate it was it was it was glorious to watch it was glorious to be part of um i always knew when you were in the water and that you know in an age craft boat that's a blessing because a lot of the times we were just guessing we were just guessing um yes but to come back to the original premise of this discussing the idea that rowing was always better 10 or 12 years ago yes it was ever thus as i believe some poet said somewhere you probably know this given my background um, it was always better 10 or 12 years ago. It was better for us 10 or 12 years ago because we were rowing and competing. I'm sure that in the Victorian era, it was better 10 or 12 years ago before all of those pesky professionals ruined it for big, fat, slow gentlemen amateurs who couldn't pull a you know skin off a rice pudding. The, the guys who were only six foot one and 13 stone. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that it was probably better if you were a slave in a, a Roman trireme. You know, it was better 10 or 12 years ago when they had triple banks of oars rather than these newfangled two banks of oars and, and the overseas. Oh, yeah, those are rubbish, those double banks of oars. Um, incredibly hard to tap down, incredibly hard to get clear of the water. Did, did you... Did you did you ever, like, draw that comparison between being a recreational rower in the modern world and being a galley slave? did you ever like think like with a third time you're like turning around on the air well for just like okay just one more time up back up and back you know we that's sort of, actually galley slaves had to be kidnapped to do that kind of work and we were just signing up for it for free did i ever think that there was a parallel between what we did as rowers and being a galley slave Absolutely. Did I ever think while Dennis was alongside us in the launch going, roll faster, pull harder, roll faster, pull harder, until we were sick over the side, there was a parallel. Did I ever think as I looked at our 20 plus hours of training a week plus a full time job um, that it might be better to take up, you know, the local squash league, you know, or, or, or possibly crown bowls as a pursuit? I mean, let's remember the French used to send their condemned men to row in the galleys it was a sport for condemned men who had nothing to live for and the english sent their sons and daughters to do it as a noble pastime and pursuit because it would more, be more only 
Yeah. Not only their sons and daughters, but they're directly de- descended from Norman landowning sons and daughters. I mean, they they sent their f- the finest sons, didn't they? What you mean? We've gone Pinson this early in the podcast. We've I, gone I, well, actually, actually, to be honest, to be honest, I, I was going to go another way and so like bring up bring up Pinson Cracknell Foster and uh, the other one, Redgrave. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah what, 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 what's his name? Did, didn't do anything for British sport. Um, you never saw him at Runcorn. You never saw Redgrave at Runcorn in the that... ever. Okay, right. If you want one thing that that has to be like, if 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 there is one thing I would say that like the establishment of British rowing could do to improve like the lot of club rowing it's just randomly sending out fours or eights or quads of not even the top four or eight quads but squad guys proper kind of like guys in gb lycra to like the tiniest little heads like runcorn to peterborough peterborough that i mean peter's a peterborough is a big one you get that um and like head head of the dart and like and stuff at like devil's elbow just like completely provincial regattas and just send them out there and just say just go out there just 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 row it at 28 you'll still win and then just shake a few hands and come back and everybody would love it even though they weren't going to win the head can I just make an observation at this point? What? Okay, so what you're basically saying, and, and I just want to get this straight before I make my observation. You're suggesting that, that Britain's most successful Olympic sport, historically, sends the cream of its well, young cycling. men... No, no, we'll get to that. It's, re- it's really, really not cycling, no matter what day trails it says. Um, you're saying that, that Britain's most successful Olympic sport, historically and currently should send the cream of its young men and women out into the provincial darkness to um, all of the heads that we used to do when we rode at Agecroft. And Chester, yeah. Uh, Chester, Runcorn, Northwich, uh, Rutherford, which is a superb course, Evesham. by the way. Yeah, all of those, uh, the Trent, um, all of the stuff that we sweated and slaved over. Now, that's basically what you're saying, yes? Before yes. I'm not right. So, okay. Now, obviously, you know, I, I don't want to draw this comparison, but I'm going to. But but there is a is there not an element here of the British Empire sending its missionaries into the outer darkness to spread the light to the benighted savages? I mean, that's basically what we're looking at here. Where where we are sending out you know the best of the best into the provincial darkness to illuminate them with the with the glow of good rowing, um, really nice lycra. Probably shells that weren't patched together with gaffer tape and fiberglass on the way down to, you know, the head. Um, you're talking about a civilizing mission. That's what you're talking about in you the modern, it, modern day and age. You say it like it's a bad thing. I, I, no, I mean, I don't actually see it as a civilizing mission. I see it much more as a kind of... I'm going to say it's it's flying the flag. It's saying it, 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 it's saying we're all one British rowing empire. It's okay. flying, 
we, 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 we believe in you as much as you believe in us. And just to show you, we've come to beat everyone at your provincial tiny little head where you can't even get a decent bacon sandwich. It's, it's like, well, well, I think that's hard. I, I, found, I always found bacon sandwiches in Northwich were excellent, even though Alistair Chapman never allowed us to eat them on the fact on the basis that we were on a diet because we all needed to lose weight to go faster. Now, let's just point out that after Ali Chapman told us all of this, we walked around the corner at Trent Head and found him and Ben, him and Ben, not him and Ben, him and, him him and Ben, with yeah, Ben, <laughs> him in bed with Ben, and they were both eating um, a full Big Mac meal with extra, with, with a large milkshake after the diet conversation. Bless his cotton socks. Um, a civilizing mission. In the same way, for example, that going to somebody else's country, hitting them repeatedly with sticks and planting a flag in it and saying that's ours was also considered a civilizing mission 120 years ago. Um, I mean, you're basically saying, yes, look what you could do in rowing. Look what you could do if you go up the rowing pyramid. Look at the lycra you could have. Look at the shell you could have. You'll have to do it down on the Thames. You won't. You won't be able to do it up in your in your kind of home. River, yeah, you can't even do it on the Thames anymore. You have to do it on this like kind of dugout gravel pit next to the Thames. I rode past that when I when I rode the length of the Thames, and I have to say, as far as gravel pits go, it's definitely one of them. It, it's lovely. It, it's one of the best gravel pits. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. I don't even know if it's a gravel pit. I, I, I don't. Th I don't think anybody. I mean. The Red Grove and Pinson. We'll, we'll look that up for the next episode. I, I, I think we definitely should. We rode past it. Um, I believe it's Caversham. So we would have been between uh, Abingdon and Henley on that, on that particular stretch. And we rode past it. And, and, and can I say that the, the four of us who are in, in that school felt inspired and moved and like we connected with something deeper? Honestly, I think we all just felt really tired because we were about 30 miles in that day and uh, the sun was beating down on our heads. We had Matt in the boat with us and he was rowing like a god, but that meant taking one stroke in every six. Um, so, we, we, yeah, we, we, we passed it. We went, we were at the home of the gods. Let's get to Henley. Let's get some food. Let's just get out of this boat. Who, whose damn idea was this? Uh, it turned out to be mine. Uh, yeah. So, so, hang on, hang on. So that, that was yourself, Chapman, Ben, and Buckers. That was myself, um, the mighty Alistair Chapman, who, despite um, me pointing out that he told us to all to go on a diet and went and ate a Big Mac, is actually a god amongst men. Matthew Bucknell, who was described by Dennis O'Neill as a god amongst rowers, um, and Ben Charles. <clears throat> who had thighs like young oak trees, uh, was a strapping young lad in the, in the Devon Townsend sense of the word. And we were rowing the length of the Thames for fun. Um, and it was great fun. And it was it was great fun. I, I, I have to say that, yes. Do, 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 I, I believe, though, that you were originally part of, of the team who were going to do it, but then you got, um, you got your, your current job, and in discretion being the better part of Valor, you, you couldn't in the end. Yeah, and, I mean, and so also I, the mighty Hancock, the mighty Hancock. There was, there was almost, I don't know. It, that sounds like six people. You, you, you're only two people short of an eight. Well, my my original plan was because we had six, and we obviously weren't in a seat race because then I would have been rowed out of my own idea. Um, <laughs> he said confidently. 
my my original thought was, well, let's just get a let's get an eight and do it as a six, because then we've got two seats to stash all of our all of our kit. Um, until we kind of worked out that the Thames uh, up at Letchlade and Cricklade, trying to get a, a trying to get an eight down it because it's quite twisty would have been like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle or whatever the biblical parable is. I I, I think they had much bigger needles back then, but um, you know, yes, more than twelve years ago, I so it's probably so. better. And much, obviously, much smaller camels at the same time. <laughs> they weren't feeding them. Um, yeah, no, I. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it was it was also it was also I'm I'm sure I said this at the time that it was just like I I'm much more of a sprint merchant. This rowing kind of like twenty five miles every day for a good four or five days. It was it was going to be it was going to be very tough on on my brain. And there's there's not a huge amount of brain to be tough on. If it if, if it's just something goes on for less than twenty minutes, I'm I'm there. Um, yeah, I, yes. Um, it was. We decided to do it as a as a forty mile thing each day. So we did the hundred and fifty miles over three and a half four days. I believe when I originally floated the idea, your original plan was to find out what the record was for the hundred and fifty miles, and then try and beat it. And I but I had the limit. I have the email somewhere where you said what we will need is we will need uh, two support teams, one to open the locks and one to close the locks, so we don't actually have to stop on the way down, and we basically just rag it, um, which was a good plan, and it was it tied in with your with your approach of treating everything in life like a time trial. Um, that's possibly an area that we shouldn't explore too deeply. Um, Probably not. Probably not, but it was actually it was it was really it was a, it was a really fantastic trip and something we should definitely talk about in one of the episodes once we get past the idea of this civilizing mission. I I, I have to say that all flippancy aside and, and 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 despite it sounding like the young men and women of Great British Rowing will be sent out into the provincial outer darkness to, to spread light there, um, the imperial overtones aside in the modern age, I think it's a good idea uh, because. As Dennis pointed out, you never actually saw Redgrave at Runcorn in the rain. And the yeah. Olympic medals are, are all well and good, and they're fine, but he never showed up at Runcorn in the rain, and that should always be held against him. And, and, and again, apparently it goes back even longer than 12 years, but, I mean, this is, this is one of the big kind of, for people who've, been in rowing and tried to organize rowing at the club level for a long time. This is one of the big kind of issues that they have is the kind of is the disconnect between the elite side and the and the club side. And and there's not really a lot of crosstalk. And you, you get the feeling that a lot of elite rowers, regardless of how they came up, whether they were like, you know, a working class lad from Bedford whose dad just happened to be a multi-millionaire dry goods importer. But, you know, he's a working class lad because he's on world class <laughs> star. Um, but, you know, whether or not you came up through the world class star or through the university system or you were properly, you'd been rowing since the age of 13 in a public school somewhere in Buckinghamshire, those guys don't really understand what it is to row in, you know, they've read at Bucks and they've read at 
schools, nat schools and all these things, but they don't really get standing around in the rain in Runcorn and eating slightly crummy bacon baps. And I, I just, I think, I think it would be good just to see them go, you know, you can talk about the suffering of doing your third 40 minute erg for the day, but you know, let's, let's see them suffer through a, like a Runcorn bacon bap in the rain. Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a lot of you raise a lot of valid points there, and definitely things that you know, when we actually get this podcast together and have an agenda and and, and you know start talking about things rather than just randomly riffing, which I'm really enjoying, um, we should definitely get to it. I think you are right. There is a there is something of a disconnect between the elite side and the club side. Um, I know that Great British Rowing is conceived as a as a as a pyramid and. From the grassroots level, we're all heading up as, as that pyramid as far as we can go based upon our, our talent, our physiological attributes and all of the rest of it. Um, there is something to be said in the idea that if you are, are a putative international Oars man or Oars woman, you have missed a fundamental learning experience by not being held on the start line of head of the trend for 90 minutes until your stroke man's toes turn blue with frostbite and have to be cut off later by a consulting surgeon, as happened to us at one head of the trend. We won because we are age cropped, but he never walked the same again. He never walked the same again, did, did, did Hancock. Um, and the other thing to be said, though, <clears throat> is this. When we're talking about that disconnect, what we're talking about is something fundamental to the act of rowing, which it, if you are a rower, you are a phenomenally strong-willed, um, individualistic type of personality. I have yet to meet a rower who did not know best about all aspects of rowing. And yet you come together in a sport that requires you to suborn your individuality to the needs of the crew. And it's an incredibly hard thing to do. And in the microcosm, we see the macrocosm because we all know a better way. We all we all know what we should be doing at the catch and we're doing it and nobody else in the boat is. Uh, and part of the skill of coaching and part of the skill of blending a crew and part of the skill of training is actually ironing it out so that the individuals move as one. Uh, but there is that sense in the wider organisation um, that, that maybe, you know, we are a sport of individuals who are, who are required to come together as teams and crews. And, yeah, you know, it's not so great. I wasn't fit enough or fast enough or big enough. I didn't have the standard deviation of the mean to be an international rower. I probably went as far as I could, given when I started and how I started. The kidney thing is neither here nor there. I didn't know that I had it at the time, so I got the scores that I got. But... To bring this all back round, you and I both know an individual who was an international rower and who came with us to a provincial head and the experience actually was the making of him. And I'm talking, of course, about Zachary Green, the incredible Zachary Green, who rode with us at the provincial head we like to call <clears throat> Head of the River in London on the Tideway. And we'd never rode together as a crew before that outing. It was brutal, it was committed, it was 
incredibly ugly. We went, we shoveled it down the river very quickly, largely sideways. And afterwards, he, he turned around to us and said, because he'd been dropped into our crew at the last minute, he said, I'm never bloody doing that again. <laughs> and it was the making of him because he went on to be a very successful international. So I think, yes, I think it should be a mandatory thing that if you are rowing for Great Britain or you're on, you're on the World Class Start programmes or you're on the fringes of international selection, you should have to do a minimum of six provincial heads every head season in the outer darkness. You, okay, right. Now, to so take that point, analogy there's further... A lot, there's a lot of points for you to play with there. Go for it. There is. But, I mean, the Zach Lee Green thing, fundamentally, I, I seem to remember him as being... He was, like, 19 years old. So not only was he a lightweight, he was under 23. He was a bit of a genius sculler in a sweep or boat, which is never an entirely perfectly happy combination. It always gets a bit agricultural. Yeah, but I mean, he 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 was he was a a sylph-like figure, a natural lightweight, shall we say? Except he was still pulling six twenty, yeah, or six nineteen or something yeah. at that tender age and size. Yeah. And I just think that you know, actually. It's not just a question that he, he he was almost a fully formed international rower at that time. What really made him, though, was not rowing some grim provincial head, but not that all provincial heads conducted in January and February are grim and dire, and I hate them. Um, but <laughs> really? it was the fact that he was just on. dropped into a crew to just you know, slog it out with a bunch of people who were, frankly, beneath him. And maybe, maybe that's what was needed. Maybe that's what... It's not a question of just going and rowing the provincial heads. It's like you have to go along there without a boat and just get dropped into a another crew and just try and pull it along. Are we putting conditions on this? So they have to row six provincial heads every head season... They should have to eat a minimum number of dodgy bacon baps as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe not if they're lightweight because they're very calorie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although so, Zach, yeah, Zach appeared to be able to eat everything up to and including a horse without ever putting any weight on. Um, but now they, they, they basically have to turn up on the day and be parachuted into any boat, which, which Zach was. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying for all six provincial heads that they have to row. Right. But, so, so maybe for at least two or three of them, you know, the ones that aren't too windy. So Runcorn, Runcorn had like a flat out eight head, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just go along, send eight rowers along and divvy them up two into just random boats. So you're basically using the GB International talent uh, talent pool as a series of ringers for clubs. Yeah. Better but, oarsmen in their boats. But 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 ringers I mean, I don't actually think it's like particularly reasonable to do this to like novice boats. But if you've got an experienced boat, it's got a few winds up under its belt, you could actually say take your you, take your two slowest guys out there and we'll give you a couple of our internationals. 
and you can just and and they'll just help you shove it along and you do and you spread out eight internationals between about what you reckon are the four best boats at Runcorn Head or Chester Head or Peterborough or, or wherever or, or wherever it is just yeah. just a small head and you you've kind of got like these these golden tickets of international rowers to hand out you know and fly the flag but actually in a boat and i i think i think that would really kind of like Bring make together, people feel a lot more chipper about the whole rowing business and just like yeah it would bring us together as one big happy rowing family. Yeah. So can I just ask before I dive into what you just said, because this is this is this has got big very quickly. Have you actually read Roald Dahl's classic Charlie and the Golden Rower book? Because that's basically the premise there, where where Charlie is a poor boy from a poor family, um, who whose life was spared from this monstrosity. Um, he went along to a, a, a rowing head. You and, can't um, do that with a northern accent, can you? No, I really... I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. And those high notes at my time of life were an absolute killer. Um, he went along to a provincial head with his friends, and, and, and um, the, the fabulous Mr. Jürgen Grobler uh, gave him a golden ticket, which, which, which was an international heavyweight rower to help his boat go down the dart a lot faster. Uh, Dahl never published this. It's in his archives. I've, I've read it. I've seen it. You have to take my word for it. Um, I'm quite impressed that you've, you've had a peek at the Dial archives. <laughs> well, you know, in my when I was doing my um, my thesis, I, I did ask to look at a lot of very random stuff, and uh, and that was one of the random stuffs that I looked at. This has got big very quickly from the idea that um, Steve Redgrave's gold medals don't count because he, he never showed up at Runcorn in the rain, to the idea that perhaps as a civilizing mission, GB rowing should. Uh, send out its its brightest and best into the outer provincial darkness to spread the light and the word to the idea that all putative internationals should do a minimum of six heads that aren't based on the Thames or tributaries every year plus a a, a mandatory number of bacon bats to the idea that um, I mean, God, the light would be so round like a bag of sweets (laughs) (laughs) yeah Almost. Yeah, have just, a bow cider. Have you not got a bow cider? Try this. We, one, could, we, could, we could make it a lottery. Or I, I know, or or like one of those kind of comedy slave auctions they used to have in the nineteen nineties where you get some like buff actor who would pretend to be a slave for like some middle aged rich housewife. So you're auctioning off the cream of British rowing. Yes. Is it right? Let's, okay. let's raise some cash at the same time. Rounds. Yes. Andy Triggs, Andy Trigg Hodge, fine specimen of a man, golden locks. Yeah, I can see it. This is this. Um, wow. This is going to need a lot of careful thought and administration. Maybe clubs have to apply, you know. Um, well, okay. We, we, it, it, it could be like the draft. In, in American sports. Right. So, so, so di- different, you know, so, okay, right. So you have to reach a certain standard to get into the draft. Right. Okay. So you've got to put a, a boat together of people who did a certain standard well in last year's benighted provincial head. Okay. okay. 
I can think of a few boats I've rowed in that would meet that standard. <laughs> okay, and then the people who made it into that standard but were at the very bottom, they get the first pick of the people. Is this so, is this just for the the six heads, or are you actually now talking about taking taking Robert, who is a nice middle class boy from Marlow, his 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 dad is a consultant surgeon and his his mum runs the hospital. Um, he's been privately educated. He's he's kind to animals and strangers, and basically, Ty and RC are going to draft him to Newcastle. The culture shock alone will kill the boy. <laughs> I mean, good God, he's going to step off the train at Newcastle Central, and his head will explode. He's going to be past the Watford Gap. He's going to be in the north where we still paint ourselves blue on a Friday night. That's not a metaphor. We all do it. It's a it's a COVID thing to get into pubs. Um, you're going to send them. You're just going to send them. <laughs> you're going to rip them apart from their families and send them into the outer darkness. Can I just come back to the whole Zach, <laughs> the idea about dropping people into boats? Uh, you know, which which obviously we're talking about Zach's experience. Uh, um, I believe at the time he'd never actually been in a sweep or boat until he rode with us. No, no, it was about his third or fourth outing. Third or fourth outing. But also, I was rowing with um, my guys under under Peter Holmes at that time, and I believe I was parachuted in at pretty short notice, and a lot of people were. It, so, it was... The, the mists of time are... Not are that, starting to sort of like coalesce around this, but but yeah, I mean, I I think at this point we were that there was a plethora of Agecroft eights, and yeah, there and and this was very much the second eight. The first eight was going for glory, yeah, um, and and had you know it, it had five Henley medals in that first day. That that was a very, very good boat and they had a very bad day. Can we just qualify? Um, they had five Henley medals, but three of them weren't actually theirs. They just picked them up on their way through the enclosure. No, no, actually theirs. Um, they ha- <laughs> actually, no, I just, just, I, I just, just remember Just because they from Manchester doesn't automatically mean they stole stuff when they went to Henley. No, I was being okay. flippant, and, I, and I, I need to roll back on that very, very quickly because I've just remembered the size of, of Craig and Tom, and um, yes, they could take me in a fight very, very easily. <laughs> um, no, that that was a phenomenal boat, and you were the your boat that I got drafted into and Zach got drafted into was the second boat, and I, I again... You know, I say Alistair Chaplin is a brilliant captain, the man who told us to go on a diet, then ate a Big Mac in front of us. But um, we didn't actually get to head of the river that year because Ali Chaplin, the most organised captain I've ever rode under, forgot to put that entry in. <laughs> yes, yes, that was it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So a, a, a classic bit of organisation. But yes, and so we had various kind of um, I was and I was drafted in because I was a bowsider and you needed a bowsider. And I, I ended up as a mobile buffer state between you and Justin. Um, that who, was important. That yeah, was who, quite important. It was very important. You, you both got on incredibly well. The love that you had for each other, I, I will never forget. And the way it manifested itself in kind of verbal barbs and insults all the way down the Thames was um, it's something I'll take to my grave as, as how, how brothers can really connect and get along. Uh, but I basically had you hooning it along in front of me and Justin going, God, 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 get it in, pull it harder. 
and I think that's actually when my kidneys did explode. Um, Zach was drafted in quite short notice, and I, I do think he sat in the bows, looked down the boat, and thought, "Yes, schooling is is the direction. It, is is the way forward. I'm yeah. I'm uh, yeah. I'm I'm now I'm I'm going for the uh, the lightweight quad forever. Yeah. To be um, fair, for a crew that hadn't rowed together, really, we were pretty quick. I think we did pretty well, uh, considering. Well, not considering. We, I think we did quite well in terms of position, and we were very fast and committed. We just weren't very pretty. But you know, we'll get to style and rowing and stroke profiles. So, uh, we we overtook here. people. Yeah, we overtook people. But Agecroft, Agecroft was never known for being a particularly pretty club. We were just known for being very, very fit and, and pretty effective. You know. I, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful for that. I, I wouldn't want to be part of like a pretty rowing club. It'd just be, be wrong. But yes, Zach Lee Green, wonderful yes. chap. The very nice young man. I mean, he he was exactly the kind of person that you almost feel that you shouldn't send to a provin- provincial northern head because the shock would kill him. Um, but. He was, I, th- I, you know, I, I do think that he, he's been shafted by bureaucracy, hasn't he? Because he, he has nowhere to go. There, there will be no more lightweight rank. Do you? I, the lightweight men's four is gone. Yeah. The lightweight men's, uh, the lightweight doubles will be going after twenty twenty four. Hmm. They will be getting in coastal rowing, which which I like the sound of, frankly. Um, that partly because I I live within twenty miles of about five coastal rowing clubs, so yeah, I'm I'm loving that idea. Yeah. Um, but you know, lightweight rowing, which has actually been quite a good metal factory for British rowing, is off. It's yeah, it's yeah. not happening anymore, and it's like I I don't I don't know how we should feel about this because you know I what, I like the opinion? idea of lightweight rowers until they go faster than me. Yes, I and and then then I hate them. <laughs> yes, how should we feel about this given your long-standing historical antipathy towards lightweight rowers who go faster than you and the idea of lightweight rowing in general as as a category. Um, it it has flaws. Everybody has to admit it has flaws. Yes. I'm not sure that Zach would say that he was shafted by bureaucracy because, firstly, he is actually a very nice young man and very personable and a hideously talented athlete, a fantastic scholar. Uh, I also believe he's now a fully qualified dentist. Uh, so he probably isn't too worried. Yeah, so he's 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 you know he's bright as a button as well, and I I I loved knocking around with him at the club, um, and I loved rowing with him. It was a great it was a great experience, and that day is actually one I remember because of the fact that we didn't actually spend eight months preparing for Head of the River. We didn't gel together as a crew. We were thrown together as a band of buccaneers and pirates, and um, we shoveled it down the course in a, 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 in a as fast as we could. It wasn't pretty. Uh, we went sideways on more than one occasion, but it was fast and committed, and it was great fun. And that surely is what rowing is all about. It has to be fun because if it's if it becomes a penance and a chore, then you know it's it's a hard enough sport 
as it is for the you know the, the demands it makes on you physically and mentally if it's something that you're flagellating yourself through i'm not sure that's the right word i'm pretty sure it is um yeah it becomes painful it becomes painful are we about to pivot from sending light into darkness into lightweight rowing oh, I, th- I think we should pivot into lightweight rowing i mean it's like <sighs> i mean do you actually i mean sort of <laughs> did it, it my opinions on lightweight rowing, you know, I, I have written about this. I've spoken at length about this often when drunk. But, you know, is yeah, this... I've never, never heard you mention it at all. Never, never. No, not it. once. Not, 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 not even just like, like, get those skinny little bastards out of here, eh? I've um, heard that on a couple of occasions. <laughs> I mean, I, am I the only one? Am I the only kind of like naturally attuned rower? Sort of like big lanky heavy you know thuggish haul on the handle who looked at lightweight rowing just say it doesn't make sense it's not right it it's it's like peewee basketball but peewee basketball that's gone to the olympics let's just for those who've stumbled upon this rowing podcast and don't actually know what what um and you will probably stumble onto it and after listening to us probably stumble out of it as quickly as you possibly can but let's just you know let's just say Say what light rate, say, imagine that I am a provincial ignorant northerner because essentially I am, uh, being from Northumbria as I am. Um, just explain what light rate, lightweight rowing is, how it came about as a category, and 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 then we'll go on to your general antipathy towards it. Well, in in sometime in the early 70s, it was realized that rowers were becoming increasingly mahusive. You know, it was a sport that favoured the very tall, the very heavy, and the ridiculously strong. And particularly in the 1970s, which was before the Green Revolution had kicked in and before calories were plentiful around the world, um, such people only really existed in what I think people called the first world back then. And so the man who is now currently... And I'm going to get this right. Honorary President for Life of the International Rowing Association, FISA, which doesn't in any way sound dodgy or like set Blatter-esque, um, decided that we needed to do something to bring in nations that had much smaller people on average than European and North American and Australian nations and so they he decided to invent this category of lightweight rowing which is for men is 60 is 72 kilograms um maximum crew weight and for women was 62 kilograms maximum crew weight probably should check that but you know it's around about that and um the reason that these weights were chosen was because that was the weight, the average weight of the bottom three quarters of the world population at, at that, that point. Time. At, that, at that time. time. Yeah. And so we then, so we just had this cutoff. Now, not only has the world become a much heavier and fatter place since then, the idea behind this was to get rowers into international rowing 
and particularly the Olympics, it, it wasn't really a it wasn't really a bottom up groundswell because it doesn't really matter if you weigh sixty eight kilograms when you live in a country where the average eight weight of a twenty five year old man is sixty five kilograms. You're still a bit of a champion. Um, it was literally to bring nations from Southeast Asia, South America, and Africa into international rowing at the highest level um and so they put this kind of like floor of 72 kilograms for men or ceiling of 72 kilograms for men and 62 kilograms for women and said that but beneath that you are a lightweight and you can row with other lightweights um and it was to bring all these kind of nations the the, the slightly unlikely and improbable nations that didn't do very much rowing into the fold and i i personally think that it hasn't really worked because if you look at even the entrance to the lightweight rowing and the lightweight sculling categories in the olympic games and even the world championships it's it's all, I mean, if you look at the final, it's always the same people, but even the entrance, even just like the qualifiers to the Olympic Games, it's always the same people. It's the French, it's the Scandinavians, it's the Germans, the British, the South Africans, and it's the Americans. It's the people who row, who've got these very, very big rowing programs and rowing infrastructures. It's rarely, sometimes you see the Chinese, but we don't trust them because they're all using dodgy drugs and they're Chinese and they, it's like, there's the Communist Party and all of these things. Yeah, are you talking about state-sponsored doping programs at this point? Yeah, I mean, let's face it. But, But let's just be crystal clear, let's be crystal clear, there has never been a history of communist countries that have engaged in those kind of practices so we're just we're just supposing or have i missed something in in recent athletics we're we're entirely supposing that an autocratic communist regime would ever cheat at a nationwide level to gain international respectability through the medium of international sport um we just want to be very clear about that because um we're not casting aspersions on any any one nation's character. I mean, we live in Britain. We can't go. You know, we live in a glass house. We we can't throw stones. I mean, on the on the, the drugs and sport issue, maybe we can. But on you know things like Brexit and our handling of COVID, maybe we can't. Um, okay, so let's just recap briefly. The lightweight categories were introduced as a fairly arbitrary but well-meaning attempt to bring other countries into the rowing fold to give opportunities. Um, to, to the less likely, shall we say. To the less likely, okay. And I, I think it's just turned into a medal factory for the most likely. Yes, okay, that's interesting. But a couple of things occur to me. You say it's always the same suspects who win, like, for example, you mentioned the, the French. Now, earlier in the podcast, I believe this is what's technically called a callback, we... Um, we mentioned that the French had used condemned convicts to row their galleys while the British had sent their sons and daughters into boats as a noble pursuit. 
has anybody actually done a genealogical study and seen whether the, the, the French winners are perhaps descended from those galley slaves and, and there's some kind of genetic predisposition towards being underfed, uh, wiry, tough and incredibly fast in a boat? I, I'm thinking of an, 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 an episode of, um, what's that thing on the British Broadcasting Corporation? Who, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are on, on, yeah. the, whole, on the whole French lightweight squad to see if actually... They are descended from Jean Valjean, and 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 actually, we're talking about Les Mis here. We're talking about yeah. ruling Les Mis. That's that's pretty good. That's 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 the first time my wife would actually be interested in that. Yeah, um, I, I mean, the musical is great, but it misses out the huge chunks of the boat when Jean Valjean is knocking out twenty-one k on a concept two. I mean, why they didn't put that in? I've got no idea. How do you think he transforms from being a a skinny, underfed uh, convict into a beefy, prosperous, uh, Matthew Pinson-esque, towering figure, training. Yeah, training, absolutely. His weight program is amazing. He was using kettlebells way before, you know, Joe Rogan made them popular. Uh, Indeed. I I, I think the book should be revisited in a rowing context. Um, So given that the world is now significantly heavier, you're arguing for the removal of the complete removal of the lightweight category? I I wouldn't actually. I I don't I don't think it actually has any place in the Olympics. I'm I'm, I'm going to say there is no good reason for the lightweight rowing category in the Olympics. Don't pull that face. Don't pull that face. If this is going Look, out, if this is going out as audio only, dear listeners, I've just pulled a shocked and horrified face because the Olympics is all about inclusivity it's all about togetherness it's all about the big international family which is why we we only allow elite people to go to it both on the sporting side and the corporate side um okay but again that that's not entirely true we don't only allow elite people you you have you have eddie the eel you have the fat to bring him up Look, there are programs in all sports particularly the race sports where you can turn around and say, look, we're offering spaces in the opening heats for people who don't normally make it to the opening heats. Okay. So here's a okay. thought. And, and they do this too in single skulls and women's double skulls. There, right. there's, a, there's a very, very broad, you know, you get the... You get the Hong Kong men's single sculling champion and you get the Algerian women's double skulls champion. So fighting it out in their respective F finals for the men's single and women's double. Okay, they are there. They are representing their country. And I think they're doing a much better job of doing that than people who are actually turning up in the lightweight categories. You don't get a lot of Algerian men's lightweight fours. You don't see a huge number of Taiwanese women's lightweight doubles. But you do see them. You do see them in the heavyweight double category. You do see them in the men's single sculling category. You know, the, the, the start list for the men's single skulls at the Olympics is like 48 boats long. Okay. I can, I can see where you're going with this. And this comes back to the idea of taking the cream of, of great British rowing and, and, and divvying them out, you know, handing them out 
at the provincial head to to boats who need more firepower. Absolutely. What you're basically arguing is that every category in the Olympics is open and we should allow a certain proportion of entrants to be what I, I mean what I'm thinking what I'm seeing with this and it's great is every four years at Agecroft after the Olympics people would turn up who wanted to be rowers and Dennis would make them do a 2k test at eight o'clock in the morning and a week later none of them would come back <laughs> which was his way of seeing if they really 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 wanted to be rowers after watching the Olympics um, and it was in a very effective weeding out process. Um, I vote that we take, we allow a novice boat as a lottery who've never rowed before, if we're all about inclusivity and diversity, to enter the Olympics and be on the start line next to the Pinsons and the Cracknells and the Redgraves of this world in the opening heats. They've never held an oar. They've never been in a boat before. I mean... But let's let them have a shot. Let's let them have a go. I, I, actually, I think I mean, that's what we're all about. slightly more selective than that. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, firstly, the comedy value would be immense. Secondly, we have to, you know, we have to level the playing field. We have to, we have to give people a chance. We have to give people this chance, I, I, I feel. Or the other way we do this is, is, is this. We don't remove the lightweight category. But what we do is we apply the same thinking to every other sport in the Olympics. So we have a heavyweight men's 1500 meter event in the running. Um, <laughs> For fat open, bastards only. Yeah, well, basically, which would open it up automatically for America, which is which is, you know, has a high rate of obesity, it would open it up for for for, for British fat athletes, um, because we also have a very high rate of obesity in this country now. Um, thanks to the school playing fields being sold off 30 years ago. And a generation later, we have a generation of children who don't run around outside. God bless them. Um, we have a heavyweight division in the gymnastics where people who have done nothing but eat Doritos for the last four years try and do a floor exercise. Uh, we have a heavyweight category in everything. We we actually we, I think I think this visa guy you're talking about had the right idea. He 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 made it arbitrary, and he tried to bring people in. We don't need to get rid of the lightweight categories. We need to open it up because the world is bigger and heavier. We need to open it up to the big and heavy of this world of this of this world. So, so you literally you're you're going away from lose the lightweight category, bring in the morbidly obese category. I'm saying we keep the lightweight category because I, I would like people like Zach to, to have a chance to win Olympic gold medals just because I personally like him. Um, although I, I believe he's technically retired now. He, he may have called it a day. And, and, and I, 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 I follow him on, uh, on Strava and he goes very fast on bicycles, unsurprisingly. Uh, um, and and this this was always one of my arguments against lightweight rowing that if you are capable of producing enormous numbers of watts for a long period of time and you don't mind starving yourself to a thin desiccated twig of a man, your your future should really be in road cycling, not in rowing. You, you're, you know, you will earn more money. You will gain more kudos. The drugs are better and more plentiful. 
um, there's, <laughs> there is more support. And it's just, you know, leave. I mean, rowing is one of these strange sports. Rowers, if you take your physi- physiognomically natural rower, they can't do a lot of other things in terms of, so if you've got someone with lots and lots of slow twitch muscle, very long arms and legs, arms and legs, not just arms, and very, you know, a very large aerobic capacity, there aren't actually that many other sports out there. So rugby is definitely one, but possibly speed and explosive capacity are more required than just churning it out for hours on end. Cycling, if you're six foot seven, you're not going to be a great cyclist. No, because you're too heavy. Swimming, your legs are too long and too heavy. Um, you know, as you, uh, Michael Phelps is six foot six inches tall, he's two inches taller than me, and his legs are six inches shorter than mine. He's all he's all torso, and that that is the that is the great bonus of being a of being a swimmer. Um, so, what I, what I'm saying is, rowing is kind of a refuge. For guys who are tall enough to play basketball, but just can't jump. Or, or indeed play basketball. Or indeed um, play basketball. It, it, it's, it's where people who you say, my God, he'd be a brilliant basketball player. Okay, catch this. Oh, oh, he missed it. Yeah. He, be- he better send him to the rowing squad. Um, I, I, ju- I just think that really, yeah. We're missing that kind of. Um, we're missing that sort of idea that we shouldn't be taking space away from the people who naturally do rowing because there isn't a lot else that they're naturally good at. It's a refuge. So you're basically saying, and I, I'm. I'm I'm not going to say Darwinian because people always get his theory of evolution wrong. But you're basically saying that we have to get rid of all lightweights because otherwise heavyweight rowers will die out. As they, as lightweights sweep across the land like a plague of locusts, gobbling up all of the metals on hand, heavyweight rowers will have nowhere else to go. They will have no other sport to go to, whereas lightweights can always be cyclists. or Lightweights can always be cyclists. They can probably... They can probably be footballers. They can probably be. There's loads of things that someone who's who's a naturally brilliant lightweight rower can do. Someone who's a naturally brilliant heavyweight, if they don't want to walk with a stick by the age of forty, they can't do rugby. So, it just in general, I I think it's a question that you really do. You know those lightweight categories at the Olympics. Mm. Those are are Olympic medals for people who could do something else if they put their mind to it. Whereas, but sorry. Whereas. Whereas they've been taken away from <laughs> rowers who actually really couldn't do anything else. So you're basically saying 
let me get this right because because I mean we're just launching this podcast and our target audience are are, are rowers. Many people yeah. will be heavyweights, and we've just said that Row, rowing is basically a consolation sport for people who can't do anything else. Yes, heavyweight rowing, elite rowers are basically elite athletes who wouldn't be elite everywhere else. And that runs all the way down the rowing pyramid. You know, if you are a heavyweight club rower and you don't want to play rugby, you're, you're probably if, in your sport. You're probably if, you were ch- if you're a heavyweight club rower and you really mean it and you want to get to Henley this year, you're probably tr- training somewhere between 12 and 20 hours a week, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. Okay. Which means that, okay, you could probably be earning somewhere between twelve and twenty thousand pounds a year playing football part time in a in are league thinking, division north. Are you thinking about Stewart at this point, who who was a defender for Stockport United County? Yeah, right? well, I, I, I wasn't, I, but I just looked up what you can earn in like the bottom semi-professional leagues Mm. and you can actually earn a decent part-time wage yeah for doing that level of training you do have to you know twice a week show up ready for a match right okay you know it's it's not it's not a nothing thing you've got to be ready full stop You, you know you don't you don't have that opportunity so I, oh i'll just i'll do this 16k tomorrow morning you've actually got to be there at the time and quite possibly you're gonna to have to play away matches every single weekend oh my god what an imposition how terrible turning up to play the sport that you've signed up for no my god no wonder modern footballers have such a hard time of it they're poor little darlings we, we, are, we are talking wet. about the poor ones. We, we yeah. are talking about the ones who aren't earning very much money. But... Can, can I just point out? We earned nothing. For nothing, yeah. Stuff. Absolutely nothing. We did it because we loved the sport. We loved being on the water. And, and thankfully, at that time, we were part of a fantastic group of people who, who made the club absolutely sing. It was a fantastic place to be. But we routinely did 20 hours plus training a week. On top of our full-time jobs and all of our other life commitments, you know, we, we would wake up at half five, six o'clock in the morning to go rowing before work with a session to come after. We'd do five or six hours on Saturday and five or six hours on a Sunday for nothing. And they're getting 20 grand a week for turning up for a game. No, of no, 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 not, not a week, a year, a year. The, 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 these are the bottom, bottom professional leagues. Not 20 grand a year. I mean, it's still, it's better than, a, it's better than, it's better than, Nothing. Being, it's better than being in a boat at eight o'clock in the morning on the Irwell when it's pissing it down, and somebody—and I'm not going to say Dennis because it wasn't always him—is basically telling you that your catch is a disgrace, your finish leaves a lot to be desired, and for God's sake, pull your finger out. And yes, I may be talking about our cocks at this point. I may be <laughs> talking about our cocks. You know, obviously, I was immune to such things because I was technically flawless. But there were people in that boat who were savaged on a regular basis. Yes, I remember it well. I may have been one of them. In fact, I was, let's be brutally honest. Um, So, I mean, what you're talking about is is a reorganization of the whole sport of rowing and the way that the categories are run at the elite level. I think that's already happening. Okay. you know, the, you know, the sport is already being reorganized. You know, it, it, uh, lightweight rowing is coming out of the Olympics, which means 
a lot of those truly exceptional lightweight riders will probably go and become road cyclists or track cyclists or something like that. Um, I don't know quite how it's going to work out, but I do think that it's not necessarily an entirely bad thing. I think that there is... So, first of all, I would say that the 72-kilogram weight category needs to be raised. It doesn't make sense anymore. Since the 90... You know, it's, it's close to 50 years ago when they thought, oh, no, I know, I know what, we'll, what we'll do. We'll, we'll make it for three-quarters of the world population. And it's, it's now it's like the bottom 40% of the world's population in terms of weight. So let's possibly raise it so that lightweight rowers who do actually try and stay in the lightweight category don't have to starve themselves to the bone because they're actually six foot three inches tall and actually were, are perfectly good heavyweights they just can't make it to the olympics um has has there been because obviously the world is bigger and, and heavier so that that ceiling looks looks quite low now I, I it wasn't something that i ever actually asked um zach or any of the lightweight rows that i know but are there issues with calorie intake um, i'm thinking kind of anorexia bulimia that those kind of things to try and make weight and they basically if they ate normally they wouldn't hit the category but they wouldn't be fast enough as heavyweights to go to the olympics so they're they're, they're restricting calories the majority of competitive lightweight rowers today cannot be said to be at their natural racing weight okay that's a that's a very diplomatic way of putting and it. you know and a lot of lightweight rowers who try to get there don't because a there is no particular guidance you know people people haven't worked out right this is how you manage your calorie intake and there isn't if you go around looking for the guidance on it um there is one famous lightweight rowing training plan out there that is famous for the fact that literally no one has ever finished it because they've got sick or injured. Um, but it, it's kind of, it, it, it is a meat grinder. People can vaguely work out how they have to um, do their calorie intake. And there are lots of charlatans out there in the cycling world who will claim to help you. And it's like how you lose all the weight. But the health consequences are significant you know we're talking about stuff like loss of bone density loss of heart muscle the performance consequences are very significant so there's long-term there's long-term long implications as well as short-term yeah so you know i don't think for for the majority of lightweight rowers lightweight rowing is actually good for them i also think that back in 1972 rowers didn't train as hard they didn't train in the same way they didn't do the same enormous volumes yeah the 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 high volume approaches i mean um when it came into agecroft when i joined after redgraves you know redgraves last stand in 2000 the high volume approach then that dennis was employing was pretty innovative at club level 
where the where basically before that you train a couple of times a week, go as hard as you could and go home. And and the sheer volume of work that he had us doing filtered down from the fact that it was what internationals were doing, which was what you I believe Jurgen brought in when he came across um I'm sure, I'm sure people have been, you know, people have been talking about it because realistically, in terms of like training, there is nothing new under the sun. No. Everybody's tried one method or another before. Um, what it more or less comes down to is that kind of athletes tend to find their own level. But yeah, the, the high, the, the specific high volume approach um, mediated by heart rates and all these kind of things and lactate levels, um, that was that only been brought into this country from 1997, 98 onwards. That that wasn't really. And if you if you look at around just before that time, cycling was going completely the other way. Cycling was saying how much time can we spend at our lactate threshold? Yeah. Now, cycling was uh, cycling in the 90s was a massive insult to sports science because every time they were talking about their training programs, they were removing or not mentioning a certain very important variable, um, which we shan't, we shan't slander, we shan't slander cycling any further, you're but they about, weren't mentioning it. You're talking about seat height, weren't you? When they, they weren't yeah, yeah, that, that, that's yeah, seat yeah, height, that, that, that's what we'll talk about. That, yeah. That's what cyclists weren't mentioning. They were adjusting their seat height. Um, but yeah, everything was kind of different. It was changing. Um, and I, I suppose before when it was, let's do, let's do bursts of speed or, you know, let's do fart leg training on Monday. We'll do sprint intervals on Wednesday. On Friday, we'll do 8K as fast as we can at rate 22. And then on Saturday and Sunday, we'll just do side-by-side -side race pieces. When you were doing that until you were knackered, you probably could sensibly manage your diet because you didn't need to bring in so many calories because you weren't doing in total as much work. Um, but these days, you know, you can't. Okay. Um, so let's just, I mean, just to recap that there for my kind of benefit, the, the way that what we're talking about is the fact that rowing changing, sorry, rowing training has changed significantly. Now, I, I'm not sure if it was 97 and 98 when it came in. I'm pretty sure I've remembered reading in Redgrave's book or Pinson's book or possibly Searle's book. No, it was definitely one of Redgrave's or Pinson because Searle was never coached by Jürgen until his 2012 exploits. Um, that when Jürgen came in, he brought this high volume rowing as a pyramid approach where there was a lot of yeah. a, a lot of uh, 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 long pieces at relatively low intensities, and as you climb the pyramid, it gets shorter and, and more brutal. And I, I can't remember the exact passage. We will analyze these books if, if anybody actually comes back to listen to this, because boy, do they really need to be analyzed as an example of the rowing or sporting memoir. Um, but it was it was in I think uh, Jürgen came across in 1990, something like that. 89. 90. No, 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 no. 
Uh, it was after 96. So you, you, was it? Every, every, everything changed in 96 after right. Atlanta, where we won okay. one whole gold medal. Yeah, in rowing. Ben Elton made a famous routine. Oh, no, hang on. No, no. I th- he might. He came over after the wall came down. Yeah, so, he came. Yeah, no, he, he came he, over after 92. No, he, I'm sure he was in place for Barcelona. And was this he? is what we're talking about for factual accuracy. But Yes. We'll, we'll, just, we'll Google it. Yeah, anyway. we'll look it up and deal with it in the next episode because I'm fairly sure that Redgrave took a break or something and came back and they decided to follow Jürgen's program because it was so different to what they were used to because Pinson talks about training used to be hit it as hard as you could until you can't sit down a few times a week uh, and that was it. And all of a sudden they were doing hours on the erg, they were doing long steady state pieces on the water um, they were being introduced to all sorts of things regarding flexibility and core. And, but back when this, so, so that kind of high volume approach has been, has been in place for the last generation of rowers, a generation being kind of 30 years, although an Olympic cycle is every four years. That's been in place for a while. But when this arbitrary standard for lightweight was put in, you know, in 72 or whatever it was, um, I think it it was created first in seventy six. First Olympics was ninety six. Right when when extra training meant putting a heavier coat on on your walk to the boathouse. Yeah, um, yeah, that kind of thing. So because there's a because of the the demands of the high volume approach, you know, you work harder. You need to put more calories in. If you're if you're fighting to make weight, you know, like a fighter or like a boxer, you're struggling to make weight. Um, for your category, and you're doing all of this work, but you're not putting the calories in. It has implications for bone density, for your, you know, for your body's physiology. Yeah, for for lots and lots of different things. I mean, I think it probably has implications for whether or not you're safe to drive, um, let alone row. Okay. Um, and, and so, I mean, sort of my basic feeling about lightweight rowing is, I don't think it's particularly good for the sport of rowing because it is a slightly bizarre thing to have at the very heights of, of um you know international rowing but i think it's not good for the rowers who pursue it or most of the rowers who pursue it who are now not naturally 72 kilogram trained athletes because they're people who are starving themselves to make 72 kilograms whilst training to get there if you see what i mean yeah i see i see what you mean um i see i yeah i do take your point the world is bigger and heavier and has moved on and yet we have people who are probably fighting to you know to make that category to give themselves their their shot at the their shot at the olympics um and in a sense i can understand it because we all wanted to go to henley um and we made sacrifices to get there, you know, um, you know, whether whether, you know, largely personal and getting up in the morning and doing the training and all of the rest of it. But it was still we still had a goal and we still had to sacrifice to get there. Um, if it's an Olympic medal, there was a famous question asked of athletes. If you could take if you could take a drug that would guarantee you an Olympic medal, a gold Ooh, medal in five years. 
But yeah, yeah. But you you die within a, a, a number of you know a number of years afterwards. Would you take it? And I can't remember the statistic, but I'm sure, I seem to have thought that it was quite frightening that a lot of people said that yes, they would take the Olympic medal and the and and the early death. Um, um, which I think is one of those reasons why possibly we shouldn't listen to Olympic athletes too closely when they discuss what they think is a good idea for their sport. Um, you know, it's just like don't necessarily listen to lightweight rowers on this subject because they haven't eaten in two days and they don't know what they're saying. Are you saying um, this because because you you are fearing a social media backlash from lightweight rowers who say? I'm a lightweight rower and I have an Olympic gold medal and I eat chocolate cake for breakfast every day and I'm I'm fine. I just have a very fast metabolism. Ah, uh, no, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just like, oh, <laughs> and no, sorry. I mean, it's just like I, I, I would just be very rude and I, I would just post pictures of like the chocolate cake which they're eating and it'll basically be a smarty. It'll be like. <laughs> Or it would be like a muffin that's made out of plastic. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a giant smarty. It's a giant smarty. I mean, those yeah, things are yeah, calories. It's at know. least an inch wide, and that's what they're eating for breakfast. That's it. Um, I think there's a wider thing as well to address, which is which is the fact that, you know, there's a famous passage in um, the Four Men in a Boat uh, book, which is which is probably the only book you should ever read about um the red grave sydney fall because it, it's actually it's, it's honest it's honest rather than a, a a very carefully curated uh narrative of the experience and we will get to those memoirs because boy that's going to be a fun series of podcasts um but he talks about the fact that uh rowers have a tendency the guy who wrote it talks about the fact that rowers have a tendency to think that because they do a massive volume of training they can eat whatever they like and it will burn off. And to a certain extent, it is true. But if you eat crappy things like, you know, chocolate and sugar um, and you're carrying excess weight, the excess weight does slow the boat down. And the, the example that he gave, surprisingly enough, was a, a you know, um, a knight of the realm. Um, he could he no longer fit his ass in the boat. I didn't say that. I, yeah, I, I, mean, I was going to mention the passage. That's exactly he, what it said in the book. I've read this book too. Yeah, I know. I was going to mention the passage where he points out that every every kilogram of extra weight is worth however many seconds per 500 and over the course of a long, of a 2,000 meter race. And Matthew Pinsent was still wearing what he very euphemistically called were his winter warmers um, well into the summer season. And he, he very nobly, in the quest for a gold medal, gave up his fried breakfast and lost a little bit of weight. And how much did Redgrave win by in the end? In uh, that, uh, well, how, it's a second and a half or something, isn't it? Yeah, so he basically he basically he won his fifth gold medal um, by the amount... By like, Matthew Pinson's diet. By Matthew Pinson's diet and a noble refusal not to have fried breakfasts after Lucerne when they got their asses handed to them in a sling by other boats. Um, so yes, diet and rowing is important. You do a, you do a huge amount of work, even at, at club level, you burn a huge amount of calories. I've never really considered the, the lightweight um, angle which, you, which you've introduced, because apart from Zach, I, I don't really know very many lightweights. I mean, um, I don't... Mark, Mark Hancock was probably technically 
a lightweight, but Mark... Um, Mark was a natural lightweight. Mark was, Mark, natural Mark lightweight. was the, the man for whom lightweight rowing should be. I mean, again, this is what I think that lightweight rowing should be. Lightweight rowing should be an entry-level category, not an elite-level category. That yeah. makes sense. It It's like kind of... It is like peewee basketball, okay? The, you have this thing that like kind of... 14 and 15 year olds can play who are not the tallest 14 and 15 year olds but they can they have space and time to learn the skills to acquire the abilities and they have and whether or not they can then say oh hang on i've got enough of these abilities that i can transfer this into the big leagues literally the big leagues in both cases and I think, you know, lightweight rowing should be this thing that you you have an opportunity to join at the beginning of your sport. So, you know, you've got your novice boats and you've got your novice lightweight boats. But when was the last time you saw a n- novice lightweight category um, at Peterborough Regatta or True. Chester Regatta? I mean, that, that's where I think lightweight rowing should be. And if it turns out that you're a natural... 71 kilograms at racing weight and oh but you do all the training it just turns out my god i've got a 559 ergo and i can really move the boat then you start thinking about not necessarily skinnying down which is bad for you but bulking up you know eating eating your fried chocolate for breakfast every morning and trying to get into the big leagues but but, um, if they, but if they have that erg score, if they have that fantastic erg score, is there not an, is there not an argument to be made, you know, for sticking them in the boat anyway because they're thirty five kilograms lighter than 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 the, the heavyweight? Absolutely. Because the, the and I, I'm thinking of again about Mark and and we should point out to um to anyone who's listening and I'm sure that we've lost everybody who ever tuned in by this point, um. Mark could row circles around everybody that we knew. He he was technically flawless. He made every boat that he went in feel better. He was just a great rower. But then he was also a superbly talented cricketer. He is a golfer who plays off four and will probably be off scratch by the end of this sentence. A wonderful um, photographer, and he designs world championship winning Formula One engines. He's just he's just really good at stuff. He is. Yeah. Um, but Dennis also pointed out that that. He, he was in the boat not because he was lighter and made it go faster, but because he had the score to put him to put himself in the boat. The fact that he the fact that he was lighter, you know, than than us by a margin was to our favour because we, we weren't carrying as much weight. I, I, I think I think fundamentally that is the conclusion that your great lightweight rower at the level that they're rowing at doesn't need a category a category that, that that's been my biggest thing that against lightweight rowing you look at the genuine greats of lightweight rowing they'd have made it into a into a top eight yeah okay you know and and and, and that, that's not just at the international level if you think about the guys who you know who were shorter and skinnier than your average rower but who made it into the boat they didn't need lightweight rowing yeah, they weren't. Yeah, they didn't need the category to get them in a boat to compete. Yeah, they were competitive anyway. Yeah, if you if you're great, you're gonna make it. If you're not, 
then you go into lightweight rank. And I, I, I don't think that that's, I certainly don't think that, that should exist at the highest levels of elite sport. Um, I think that there's something to be said for it at the entry entry levels of sport, though. Yeah, yeah, because it gives you a chance to learn with people at your, at your own level. And you're not, for example, learning bad technical habits from be, by being asked to row longer than you're actually physiologically capable of, which which can happen with people who are a little bit shorter in a boat. Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, so I, I I like that. I mean, I, I think I think that we've concluded that it's entirely reasonable to get rid of lightweight rowing, and uh, in fact, that lightweight rowing was an entirely unnecessary adventure in the first place. So let's just recap because I, I believe this this is feeling suspiciously like our first episode. So far, we've we've introduced ourselves, um, uh, which is which you know um, means our anonymity is certainly blown. We have suggested that great British international rowers should do a minimum of six heads uh in the in the provinces every head season either either minimum number of uh, dodgy burgers or bacon sandwiches that they should be parceled out to clubs who need extra firepower by means of a lottery a lottery or possibly an auction or possibly an auction I, or, you know or, I, I think we're both capitalists we we we, we, lo- we like this okay you know. Uh, or, or if if we're really talking about making role, uh, rowing egalitarian and and diverse, we're going to institute a draft system whereby young men and women are ripped away from the arms of their family and sent to places like Newcastle to clubs that need them, whether they like it or not. Which which you know I think has a yep. lot of interest. Um, we've touched briefly on the fact that the the rowing memoir is something that really needs to be discussed at length, uh, particularly with regards to some of our our own personal heroes um and we've talked about lightweight rowing to the point where we're probably going to get lynched by lightweight rowers at some point in the that's future. scary yeah yes <laughs> well uh, from what you told me they'll be so so hunger crazed that they might not lynch us they might just eat us but because they have no energy we should be able to run away from them fairly quickly Indeed. unless if unless if i've read you right um, they have cycles. Uh, they, uh, they they have bikes. In which case, they, they'll be really quick and be able to catch us. We've established that lightweight rowing was um, a well-meaning but arbitrary attempt to get other ro- other other nations and um, bodied people into rowing. We've argued very cogently, I think, for the introduction of a men's heavyweight 1500 meter running race in the Olympics and other categories. Yep. Uh, we've pointed out that every lightweight that ever rose at the Olympics takes a medal away from a heavyweight. Um, Indeed, they do. That the proliferation of lightweight rowers me- means that heavyweight rowers may die out, as it's the only sport that they can actually do. Yeah. Um, that might cause a few Russians among some heavyweights, but you know, let's just let's just leave that one there. And that- yeah, but if you, if you get any feedback from that, so like, give them a basketball and say, "Go on, then dunk that, mate." Well, yes. They won't even reach the rim. There's a fairly standard test. I mean, I, I've 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 seen us try to play football as a warm up, and it was um, if yeah, it was on yeah, if it was on YouTube, it would it would be, it would, it, would, it would break the internet. Um, <laughs> and we've argued quite cogently that if you are good enough, you will be fast enough. So therefore, you don't need a category. Yeah, I, I think we have argued these things successfully. Yes. I think that's a pretty good first episode. I'm, I'm I, mean, gonna, I, I enjoyed I, it. I don't know if anybody else will, but I've had a blast. I, I have indeed. I'm going to say I'm going to hit the stop recording button.
Okay, so this has been the first episode of Broken Oars. Click the link to subscribe. There isn't a link yet, but we will put one in before we actually launch this. Um, yes, we do know what we're talking about. Yes, we occasionally get some of the facts wrong. We will Google them for next time. Especially me. Uh, well, it's both of us. Um, it's just a bit of fun to chat about rowing because in case you haven't guessed, we both love the sport massively. We enjoyed our time in it and um, we're still kind of in it. You know, it never leaves you. Indeed. So I'm going to say, Aaron, it's been great as per usual. Yes. Thank you very much for attending and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, Mr. Hines, for having me. And until the next episode, see you all soon. Bye.